0: Essentially, you'll hear the stories you won't find on their professional bios. And of course, you'll learn a bit about their practice. Now, let's get to the episode. On today's episode, I'm speaking with Patrick McMahon. Patrick's an associate in Foley's Chicago office, where he focuses on general commercial litigation as well as labor and employment matters. Patrick has a really interesting path to law school that includes serving for the U.S. Air Force. In this conversation, Patrick walks us through his decision to apply to the Air Force Academy. He shares what it was like to attend and how it was that he went from being a pre-med to a pre-law major. Additionally, Patrick opens up a bit about the six years he spent as a communications and cyber officer. And he talks about about a six-month period where he was aide-de-camp to a two-star general. Well, it's really interesting to hear Patrick talk about this time, what I most appreciate about our conversation is hearing him reflect on what he learned about teamwork and leadership while in the military. Also, I have to apologize as you'll soon hear, my audio is not great in this conversation. I'm still new to podcasting and simply forgot to check my levels before jumping in with Patrick. Fortunately, you can hear me just fine, but you might note that I sound a little tinny and a little far away from the mic. But... I promise I'll check my levels going forward. And I can guarantee you that my tech problem does not at all detract from the many insights that Patrick McMahon shares during this conversation. I hope you enjoy it. Hi, Patrick. Welcome to the show. Good morning.
1: Thanks very much for having me on. Honored to be even thought of for something like this, frankly.
0: Well, I'm really happy to have you and I'm looking forward to hearing about your path to law and to Foley, but first as I start with everyone, can you do that like 30 to 90 second professional intro you would do at a networking event or if you were on a panel?
1: Sure. So I am an associate in our Chicago office. Um, I'm in the litigation department, but I have been increasingly focusing on labor and employment. And uh, I guess it's about a year ago now that I actually took the full dive and became a primary member in the labor and employment group. Really been doing labor employment since I started, but still keeping my toes in the water of general litigation just to kind of brush up on my litigation skills. I'm still in the stage where I still need to refine those. Yeah, just looking to focus more and more on labor employment as I go forward.
0: And what year are you at the firm? When did you join?
1: I started in 2015. So this makes me in my fifth year right now.
0: Okay. So we're going to talk more about that shortly. But now let's jump, I guess, to the beginning with you, which is where are you from? Where did you grow up?
1: Well, I'm actually a Chicago area guy. Um, I grew up in Arlington Heights, Illinois, just Northwest of here. Um, Probably about a 30, 45 minute drive out from the city and really had, you know, I think maybe is a bit of a blessing, a fairly vanilla suburban life growing up in the Northwest suburbs of Chicago, complete with yellow lab, one brother, one sister, and, and, you know, a two parent household. So in that in that respect, I felt very lucky. But then uh, after high school, I went out to Colorado to go to the Air Force Academy for undergrad. And that's when my you know, life and my life uh, perspective changed a lot.
0: Okay. We're definitely talking about that. But I'm actually curious as to what caused you and when you decided that you even wanted to go to the Air Force Academy.
1: Man, that's, that's a bit of a long story. I'll try to cliff note it a little bit. So my mother... We
0: have a little bit of time. So <laughs> okay.
1: So my mother went to a uh, family reunion in Iowa. This must have been when I was about a, in my second semester of my sophomore year in high school. Typically, we'd go to those. But at this point, you know, I was pretty involved in sports. My younger brother and sister were as well. So she went on her own this time and, uh, it's out, you know, at a farm in Iowa with her side of the family and some second cousins twice removed, you know, the people that you don't really see a lot, but it's nice to connect with every once in a while if you have the chance. So she was out there, came back after a few days out there and and said she met a, a cousin of mine named Kyle she said, uh, I met your cousin, Kyle. He's a he's at the Air Force Academy. Uh, and this was right around the same time I was starting to look at colleges more seriously. To that point, I'd mostly been looking out on the East Coast, you know, uh, Boston College, Duke, University of Virginia, schools like that. But my mother comes back and says she met this cousin of mine that was at the Air Force Academy. And my, my first reaction was really, what is the Air Force Academy? Didn't know what it was didn't know it existed. Didn't have any military in my family, except for my grandfather, who was in World War II, like many of us that have grandparents that served around that time. And he passed when I was young. So it wasn't he like he was a major part of my life or I had a military around me growing up or anything like that. But it was enough to perk my interest. So I looked into it a little bit. I guess to my surprise, uh, the Air Force Academy was a school held in the same regard as many as the many of the Ivy League schools and schools of that caliber, and it had a little bit of extra. So, at at that point, it was enough to convince me that I should go out and just take a visit, and I did.
0: Where is it? I've realized I don't know where it
1: is. It's in Colorado Springs. Just I guess a little more background. So the Air Force Academy is in Colorado Springs. That's the Air Force's Service Academy. The Army has West Point in uh, in New York. Navy has Annapolis in Maryland each service has their own service academy and i didn't even really consider the other ones i don't frankly have a good reason for that um other than just my my cousin kyle was at air force and that's what i was going to go visit so later in my junior year i went out and visited kyle and spent a night out there at the air force academy with him and you have to understand that the at the these academies you're essentially living in dorms or barracks for all four years you're living with all four year, years of uh, students. So freshmen through seniors and you're split up into squadrons. You're wearing uniforms every day, getting up early. Everybody goes to breakfast together, classes in the morning at lunchtime, you march to lunch, you form up on this, on the terrazzo they call it, march to lunch together. So I'm, you know, 17 years old at the time and I'm spending 24 hours here, maybe not really appreciating what it means mean to live that life as much as it is to visit it maybe I fell in love with the uniforms a little bit or the camaraderie or just like this idea of being a part of it. I convinced myself over those few days that this, that's what I was going to do and or at least I was going to look into it more seriously. And so I did. And it turned out it was a much larger process than I would have really thought to apply to college. So each one of the service academies, you have to apply to your congressman from the district that you're in and then both your senators in DC from your state. And you apply to them And then all of them can nominate 10 people for every spot they have at a service academy. And then the service academy picks one of those 10 to come and actually take the slot. So you're applying to essentially almost four colleges because you have to do applications for all of them essays now obviously you can kind of reuse some of that stuff but you have to nonetheless apply to all these different people and on top of that there's a physical requirement so you have to do some you know running and push-ups and agility and stuff like that but this is all to say it was a very long process
0: (laughs) no kidding and I just have to reflect back on that a little bit because I mean I guess I'm much like I'm basically you when you were 16 or 17 that I don't know a lot about Any of the academies, like you mentioned, West Point and some of the others, I've heard more about those than the Air Force Academy. But just to recap, you go to visit your cousin, you're 17, and that could have gone multiple ways. You could have gone and been like, this is super not for me. But instead you went and you decided this is something that I think I would like to do, but it's no small feat and that you then had to engage your congressman senators, et cetera, on this really long application process as a, a junior senior?
1: Yeah. I mean, just like is it's around the same time frame that you'd be applying to any other college. And he, some of them have interviews. At the time, my representative was Mark Kirk, who was later a senator here. I ultimately took the nomination from him. You only take one. Right. So I also had an an offer from Senator Durbin. But for whatever reason, the numbers sometimes work out that the senator would like to maybe shift the number to somewhere else and use it for another person if they know that you can get a nomination through another route. So there's kind of a numbers game that gets played. But for whatever reason, I ended up getting a nomination from Kurt Mark Kirk, and there was a you know a little breakfast brunch thing to memorialize that. And I mean, I'm looking. This is the first time I really thought about this in a while, frankly. <laughs> but-
0: That's the point. And I also realize some of the questions I'm asking you, I think, are a little bit, are the antithesis of maybe who you are as a person, but also the military, at least from what I picked up, you know, because you are co-chair of our um, Veterans and Allies group, that there really is this, we don't, I'm not here to brag about who I am or what I've accomplished. And so in some ways, I'm actually, I'm pushing up against that a little because there's part of me that's listening, thinking, it doesn't sound that simple. It doesn't sound like maybe everybody who applies gets a nomination from some state or federal representative. So I just, I, I do, I find this interesting and I appreciate you taking the time to look
1: back on it. Yeah, no, and I'm happy to do it. I think the acceptance rate, I mean, we had, I think around 16,000 applicants for my class. This is I just what I remember. And I, and we took a class of about 1200. So there's definitely a whittling, whittling down that goes down there. And you got to remember that, you know, we're also division one athletic school. So there's also a number of athletic scholarships that are given out a lot of them for football, obviously, but you know, basketball, both on the women's and the men's side track. We have a really good track and cross country team, but all those sports are out there too. So not only are you have 1200 total slots, but you also have ICs, intercollegiates, that is what we refer to them as, um, that are coming in as well. It's definitely a finite number, but you're also, you know, stepping back, you're also getting these nominations from all these different representatives and, and senators and, it makes sense by nature of it it is a United States military academy so you get this wide swath of people from across the country and that kind of gets back to something i alluded to earlier it was just the idea of expanding my perspective on where people come from and not only just areas of the country but just the backgrounds generally you know i largely had a pretty homogenous group of friends and and social circle growing up not by you know any choice it was just a product of circumstance but then you get out and you go to a school that you know, it's not like even just a regional college. It's not like going to U of I here of here in Illinois. You get a lot of people from the Midwest. You get people literally from all over the country, and then a smattering from, of international cadets as well. And some of these freshmen too. I should I should mention are prior enlisted. So you go to the Air Force Academy, and you get commissioned as an officer. So officers are I'm going to throw out a number here. It could be wrong. Like 12 percent or 15 percent of the of the force, and the rest are enlisted. Enlisted is a gross generalization is somebody that will graduate from high school and essentially enlist in one of the services. Sometimes these people will later become officers. And one way to do that is to go to a service academy. So some of my classmates were prior enlisted and they maybe have served in the Air Force for a number of years already. They come in with some military experience already. Oftentimes, again, a generalization, (laughs) don't take it too broadly um, here as truth for all the time, but they came from backgrounds that may have been a little more challenging. They didn't have the path to college, let alone a service academy. They went and served in the enlisted side for a while and then ended up on the officer side. So there was a lot of perspective that came out of that as well, having that perspective of being enlisted for you know two, three, four, five years, and then going to a service academy, and then their background before that. So it just contributed to a really diverse group of people, particularly as compared to what I grew up with.
0: Yeah, it really sounds like you viewed sort of life before the Air Force Academy versus life after. Maybe I'm wrong in interpretation of that.
1: Part. I mean, to a certain extent, I mean, I wanted to seem like I was completely sheltered as a kid or, you know, like my parents, like, you, you know, kept me with blinders on the whole time. But um, again, I mean, it was just a product of growing up in the Northwest suburbs of Chicago. And I think a lot of that's, probably pretty similar today. I don't think Arlington Heights looks terribly different than it did when I was a kid. Bigger, but I mean, I think, you know, demographics haven't changed too
0: much. Well, So what was that like? I think you've you've done more than allude to it, but you go through that process. You do go to the Air Force Academy. You show up. I'm assuming at that point, you didn't know that you were going to go on to law school. Maybe I'm wrong, but what did you want to accomplish at the Air Force Academy? What was the plan?
1: Well, the first step was just get through my first year, because I didn't know anything about the military, and you need to know a lot about the military to do to do well that first year at the academy. There's a lot of, uh, for lack of a better term, I'm just going to call it hazing. It's not, you know, it, but it's a lot of uh, rites of passage, physical training, mental training. So on top of the, what I'm going to say is a fairly rigorous academic curriculum, I had an engineering class every semester I was there, and I was a biology pre-med major. I had no desire to do anything along the lines of engineering, but I was taking aeronautical engineering, astronautical engineering, so like satellites and orbits and things like that, um, two semesters of physics, you know, things that I just wanted nothing to do with. But the idea was to spit out these well-rounded officers. So we had these really broad curriculums. But then on the military side, you also had to just learn basic stuff like ranks and how to march and different regulations and you had to memorize different planes and their armaments and all and all the while, while maybe doing push-ups for an hour. So it was an idea of stressing your brain and your body at the same time. And through that process, I mean, I tell you, I, I learned a lot about my limits, how to handle stress, not to sweat the small stuff. And I think really importantly, teamwork. So you start out as your, as your freshman and you're the, the, the recipient of all this attention. <laughs> but then as you're a sophomore, junior, senior, you're on the other side. And you're the one doing the training and you get the chance to put the freshman through, you know, a difficult first year. But you learn some of these tricks and, and the idea of, you know, maybe picking out one of the weaker people in the group, not to make it harder for that person that's weaker, but for everybody to realize that we need to band together to get through whatever this situation may be and, uh, you know, overcome or th- this obstacle. You know that teamwork aspect is something that I really value, and something that I I like to try to to bring in even today. is It's not a one for one trade off, but you know I like working on teams, and and I and I I know that through experiences like that I have my own weaknesses, and the idea is to find people that can complement those weaknesses with you know with their strengths and vice versa.
0: Yeah, I'm really out of my depth here. In many ways, in this discussion, I don't have any real close family members in the military, but where I've started to pick up more information about the military is actually through my interest in well-being, teamwork, and basically sort of like human optimization, whether it be books or podcasts. And frequently they will talk about the way the military breaks people down, I guess is one way to put it, but really to figure out how you work, particularly through sleep deprivation and just learning how when things are not ideal for you, how, how do you function? What sort? And I don't mean this in a negative way. It's actually really, really fascinating.
1: It's accurate.
0: (laughs) Yeah. And also just what we can learn about teams and teamwork. And you can help me out here, but frankly, there's a tremendous amount of emotional intelligence happening in the military (laughs) with how people work together. So I have not finished it yet, but like I picked up Stanley McChrystal's team of teams because these are all things that I think we can be using in the workplace
1: to back to your, your first point about breaking you down to build you up. I mean, that is a lot of the first year is that you're given these tasks over and over again and put in stressful situations and asked to perform. Sometimes these tasks are frankly impossible. You know, I, I, we would do it on the other side. We'd ask people to do stuff that we know that they would not be able to do at that time. Just and, and that's in the more of the tearing down part, right? Then as you advance, I mean, some of the more difficult tasks are now attainable. And then you maybe show them a way of, of attaining those goals in, in the building up phase. So you're no longer giving these impossible tasks. You're giving difficult tasks, but no longer impossible. And you have learned some lessons along the way on how to accomplish them. And it's through accomplishing those goals I mean, one by one on the building up part that really, on the other side, you kind of emerge with this confidence that you didn't have originally. And what might seem as an insurmountable obstacle on the front end now you're not going to just dismiss it. You're going to think, you know, how do I get around this? How can I tackle this? And I, and I still find myself approaching some problems today the same way.
0: Yeah. That makes sense
1: to me. Something that can just seem, you know, overwhelming at first, you know, well, I've been through tough stuff before. I'm going to figure out a way to get around this.
0: Well, and the more that I learn about the military and some of the tactics used, I think as an outsider, you think like it's all about physical strength of some sort, right? You think of like Navy buds training or something, but I've really come to learn that that physical, sure, it's there and it's important, but so much of it is mental and the way they're they're prepping the the mind and the way the the mindset. So you mentioned there's so much you're learning your first year, but you knew at that point, I think you mentioned you were pre-med with the biology focus. So uh, what happened? Did you keep with that path or what happened next?
1: So I, it was my junior year, I think. I had been in the biology department in that major the whole time. I had started in on the pre-med part of it. So I had taken a couple semesters of organic chemistry and the lab associated with to this day was probably I regrets about doing that. <laughs> but um but uh you know it was an anatomy course that I was taking, uh human anatomy and we were working on cadavers. So had my hands Inside of Jane Doe, you know, working on her abdominal muscles and you know just doing that, and I wasn't like passing out or anything like that. But you know, I was just I don't really love this, you know, and and it's not not a great feeling that I have right now. And if this is how I feel right now, you know, where am I going to be when I'm two, three years into medical school, Uh, really committed, not only committed just to medical school, but I imagine also having the Air Force pay for it which is uh, you know adds to a commitment to stay in the service. So you have to be you know pretty sure about pursuing that. You know I just decided that it it wasn't right for me and I liked the department, I really liked the teachers and my professors that I had out there so I I stuck with it just and that was going to be my that was my ultimate degree but I just decided at that point that you know I need to explore elsewhere and my father's an attorney I, I'm not going to say that he's the reason that I went into law but you know, the way that he approached his career and then also was a father and a husband showed me, you know, that there's a really good way to have a fulfilling career, provide for your family and be present on that path. So I decided to explore that and really with also with an undertone that I, I relished being in a position where somebody would have to come to me and really put their full trust in whatever I'm going to do. So I'm not going to equate it with being in medicine, like where your life could literally be on the line. You know, I, I'm dealing in labor and employment law now or in the general commercial litigation, you know, contract disputes, thing like that. So it's not on that same level, but there is a there is a level of, I have this problem. I'm coming to you as my attorney. I don't know how to fix it, but I need you to fix it for me. And I need you to, I'm going to trust you to do everything that we can for the best result. So there's that level of trust there that, that I like, and, 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 you know, trusted advisor role is really something that I I want to be and uh, something I'm always working towards, but that just seemed like a route that I wanted to go down. And so I looked at some electives that had to do with undergrad, you know, pre-law kind of classes. And I want to take like a least quote unquote sexy course. I want to take something really dry. I didn't want to like take like public speaking where I'd be like, oh, this is what I'm going to do every day as a lawyer. I took legal research and reasoning, which was essentially how to Westlaw. And there was a semester of that, if you can believe it.
0: Yeah. an undergrad, essentially.
1: Yeah. Right. Didn't
0: know that was a thing.
1: Maybe it is now. I don't, know. <laughs> I don't know. But it was then. And I took, I remember that was the first time I'd ever won on Westlaw during that course and just had some basic, really basic legal research assignments over the course of semester and a little bit of writing and really just summarizing whatever cases you found. And to the extent you can be good at it at that point, you know, I found that I was and I found out that I didn't hate it, you know, and I enjoyed the idea of having the argument there, the advocacy piece of it. So at that point, I resigned that, you know, law was going to be my next step. But it's a little more complicated coming out of the Air Force Academy.
0: I was going to say, as far as I know, you didn't just jump straight to law school. But then what happened?
1: There are some routes you can go down for scholarships. But at that point, I was that, that ship has kinda, had kind of sailed for me. As an Academy graduate, um, you owe at least five years of service afterwards. If you fly, that bumps up to like 10 or 11 years. Just because of the cost of pilot training, it costs like 2 or $3 million to put somebody through pilot training. And they're not going to let that walk out the door as soon as you're done.
0: Right. And when you said if you fly, I was thinking aircraft, yeah. right?
1: I did not fly. <laughs> I flew a desk. I went into communications. And the reason I chose communications, and I should say communications is basically all things you would think you would use to communicate with. But just by its nature and technology, it's uh, largely IT related. But every base has a communications squadron. Right. So I knew I wouldn't be limiting myself geographically if I went down the communications route. And there are a lot of <laughs> rough Air Force bases out there. And being from a city, I didn't want to be stationed up in, you know, North Dakota. No no offense to any of the North Dakota ins that may be listening right now, but not my cup of tea. So I was hoping to be around somewhat near a, a, a city. So I started looking at bases and really just looking at a map and having never lived on the East Coast before, I was looking on the East Coast and not appreciating geographical differences on the East Coast. One of the bases I listed was Dover Air Force Base, Delaware. That's the base they gave me. Turns out Dover's not that close to DC, Baltimore, and Philly. It's about an hour and a half or two hours What? So don't let the map deceive you. So that was my start as an officer afterwards, but, start and, and that was my beginning as a communications officer for the next, uh, ended up being six years.
0: What does that mean? What does a communications officer do?
1: Well, that's another cool part about coming out of a, an academy and, uh, and, and being an officer right away. So I walked into the Dover Communications Squadron, the 436 Communications Squadron at Dover, and I was a flight commander. For uh, a small, well, I wasn't a flight commander initially, but near that. But essentially, I was in charge of ten to fifteen people, anywhere from you know eighteen years old to forty, you know, and and I'm twenty two years old. And so it's weird having somebody that age call you sir, but that's just the nature of ranks. And gets back to the the demographics and the split up of officers to enlisted I was talking about earlier. But you're essentially put into a leadership role right out the gate. You have a team, you have to manage and and lead them effectively. And I will say that there is a, I think a big difference that often gets overlooked between leadership and management. The leadership part is something that, you know, I really wanted to focus on and really having your your team that will follow you and trust you and respects you. I think a lot of people can manage. I, I don't think as many people are as good at leading and the leadership is really something you got to work on. And it even goes back to the academy. They call it a leadership lab because you, as you went up through, your years at the academy, you had more and more responsibility, which kind of set you up nicely to start out as a young officer and have some people that are not just, you know, quote unquote college students that are that are reporting to you. Can you
0: tell me, you, you just said a little bit, but just to state it more even more clearly, what's the difference between leading and managing?
1: Well, managing is you know managing. You have a task. You need to get it done. Right. A to B. How do we do it? You can set out all things aside and the people don't matter. You know, it's just a warm body. Get it done. Doesn't matter the level of respect you show for people, don't need to be inspiring, but you can just get the task completed. And then, you know, for the levels above you in management, whatever management level you're at, they might not even notice or care how it gets done. They don't care how the sausage gets made. Leadership, I think, is more about developing relationships. And I think the leadership side fosters growth in in an organization and that you have that mutual trust between leader and subordinate. They're not afraid of you to, to come with these new ideas or maybe prevent, uh, or present uh, opposing viewpoints in a respectful manner. Obviously, again, it gets back to that growth, not only from a, maybe an operational perspective, but also from a cultural perspective. If people work in an environment with a strong leader, and strong does not necessarily mean heavy-handed, but somebody that is, you know, a clearly defined leader, um, I think there's a level of comfort there that they can, that, you know, they can express their viewpoints.
0: Well, and I I ask because I think in large law firms, the industry, and maybe in in large corporations, but I'll stick with large law firms, oftentimes what we see are our partners who are essentially their managers, but they tend to often be project managers versus people managers. And when I say that, you know, I'm new to Foley, I'm not commenting on Foley and Lardner, but I, I think it's something that in terms of like my focus with diversity and inclusion, is really changing structures so that that leadership and development of humans is valued versus project management of tasks for clients. So I just really appreciate you elaborating on that. Although I did also want to ask, you're at this base in Dover, but I I want to specifically what you were doing. Is it helping planes land? Like, what are you (laughs) doing there?
1: (laughs) Well, I mean, it, it, it depended on the different. So there's like sub, so the squadron is the communication squadron and there's individual flights within it. So like one flight would be responsible for the IT backbone, that would be internet, computers, that kind of stuff, telephones on the base. Another flight would be responsible for the radios, radar, things like that on the airfield so i touched a little bit in both um when i went over to the to the to the airfield side that's when i had i was in a separate building away from my commander had my own little group of people over there and i think that's the time where i got a chance to really just you know take on a you know take the reins a little bit more as far as leading my own little group when i was on the it side of things the same building that the commander's in the commander's around all the time he's a great guy but you know a lot of that stuff I'm just kind of in the middle, but really, when I'm off, literally on the other side of the base with my team, we have our own interactions throughout the day, and it was that was a re- more rewarding experience than the initial spot.
0: Well, as you said, that's a tremendous amount of experience for someone at 22. And also, I'm going to jump you ahead a little bit because we probably only have about 10 more minutes together. But from photos, it looks to me like you didn't spend the whole six years in Dover.
1: Yeah, so mostly it's on the East Coast. So three years in Dover. And three years in Boston. Those were like my two main bases. Boston was great. Also, had a lot of TDYs, temporary duties, as I was there. Spent some time in the deep south, you know, southern Alabama, Mississippi. Talk about more cultural exposure there. Um, Alaska, Springfield, Illinois, Syracuse, New York, all these random spots just for little pieces of time. Spent probably about three total months in Germany uh, working at a base out there. But then I was deployed for about six and a half, seven months in the Middle East working primarily out of an army base, Camp Arifjan. And I went out there thinking I was going to be the communications officer for this this unit I was joining. It was a joint unit too. So it was not just Air Force, it was Air Force, Navy, Army. Um, but I got out there and the aide de camp, fancy name for, I mean, I'm going to call a personal assistant, even though it's a little demeaning, for the general that was the, the two-star general out there was outgoing. And they needed a a new young officer to fill that. So I was a first lieutenant, just about to put on captain at the time, and actually did get promoted to captain while I was there, which is kind of cool. I ended up being the aide de camp for this two star general out there, who oddly enough was Major General Robert McMahon, same spelling as me, tall, thin guy, led to some pretty interesting interactions while we, you know, during the six or seven months I had with him. We were mostly in Kuwait, but he was a two-star general, and he was in charge of logistics, uh, for essentially trying to streamline logistics in and out of the theater. I was a communications officer, did not know much about logistics, but it didn't really matter in that job because I was really just, I was his calendar guy, I was his, you know, his gatekeeper as far as who was coming in out of his office. I was the security, so I was carrying a little bit of, you know, I was carrying guns and things like that while I was over there. And wherever he went, I went. So we would went to Qatar, Jordan, Iraq, Afghanistan, several different spots while we were over there. Um, My only private jet experience in my life, really getting to take I mean, they're military jets, so I mean, don't get too excited, but <laughs> but, but nonetheless, uh, you know, it's kind of cool. I would drive up on the suburban onto the tarmac, and then the and then we just drive up to the plane, hop out, throw the keys to somebody, hop in the plane, and we're off. But that more cultural exposure. Let me tell you, um, anywhere from you know being it driving through Kabul at two in the morning, something I never thought I'd do in my life, um, and then going to Jordan to meet with a Jordanian merchant that was essentially trying to convince us to bring in more goods through Jordan (laughs) and staying in a, you know, resort hotel room out there in the middle of deployment where I'm typically in the desert and, you know, in a military base the whole time. It was a radical change just in the middle there. So it was a pretty wild six or seven months. Fortunately, you know, nothing too hairy happened. You know, I wasn't taking fire or anything like that. So in that respect, I was very lucky. It was a really great six or seven months. And when you see so much on the news, particularly around that time, as far as what was going on in the Middle East, it was nice to to actually be over there and see it firsthand, um, and get some perspective on the ground. But that was my one and only deployment there, and the rest of the time was was uh, stateside.
0: It's a lot for me to not ask all kinds of follow up about all of the things you just raised, but I'm not. What I'm going to say is, you that was a part of the six years, and then you were able to go to law school.
1: Yeah. So then I was, you know, that last year I was maybe going to get after five, but I knew I wasn't going to deploy again. And I liked Boston and I wasn't particularly in a rush to get off to law school. So I had spent that last year, one more year in Boston, took the LSAT, probably should have taken the LSAT a little more seriously than I did. <laughs> and as far as the law school plan, it was, I was either going to go to, you know, the quote unquote T14. And if that dream didn't come true, which it did not, I would come back to Chicago and go to the best option for me here. And ultimately that ended up being DePaul and it, you know, I'll just say that it got me where I wanted to be. Never thought I would end up at a big law firm. I just never thought it was for me. You know, I had this view of, you know, maybe this gets to some of the, you know, advice for law law students thing, but I never thought at the time that like the the big law atmosphere was something I wanted. You know, I had this view of what it was and just burning the candle at both ends and, and, and just at the exclusion of any kind of social or family life. And, I think to some people that ends up being a reality, um, but I don't think it has to be either.
0: So how did Foley and Lardner come onto the scene while you were in law school?
1: I'm just going to say this right now. Like <laughs> throughout, throughout my career to this point, I think I've always had the mentality of try to keep as many doors open as I can and, and walk through the one that's the most appealing. Right. So in law school, I was focused on IP. I was looking at IP law and and things in, and took IP classes. My first summer was at an IP litigation firm. So after my first year, there's this IP fair that I think Loyola hosts.
0: It's like the job, or it's where you interview, essentially.
1: Yeah, well, this this is yeah. It's at a uh, Embassy Suites. It is full of law firms from across the country. They all come to Chicago, and you just just interview with a bunch of law firms if you have the mutual interest. You'll bid, you know, and if the bids reciprocated. It just brings everybody together, so you can do all these different law firms at once. I came in, and one of the firms that I interviewed with was Foley again for an IP slot. And interview went well. Got a call back. Came in, had some interviews here in the office. Uh, One I distinctly remember was with Bill McKenna. It was great, uh, really great guy. And Aaron Tantliff, who was someone I was going to be working with because they thought my background, communications in the Air Force lined up nicely with the IT side and a lot of the IT stuff that Aaron deals with in this IT, you know, technology and transactions group. So I came in and started that, accepted the offer for Foley really before I did any kind of OCIs or anything like that, just because it seemed like a great fit and I wanted to explore it. Started at Foley that next summer, really with a focus on being in that group. You know, for whatever reason, it just didn't seem to be like a great fit. It wasn't even just Foley. It was just even throughout my second year, and and doing, working more and more with patents and IP. I just didn't love it. You know, I what the idea of staring at patents all day, and you know, God bless the people to do, but it just wasn't my bag.
0: I'm thinking, did it give you
1: the same feeling as when you had your hands inside a cadaver or was it a little different? <laughs> it was, yeah, well, maybe not such a visceral, you know feeling, but yeah, you know, just the feeling that, yeah, you know, just knowing that I, I this might not be the path for me. And again, to Foley's credit, when I got here that summer, you know, I expressed about probably you know three weeks in that you know, I'd like to try some other stuff. You know, I'd like to try try some litigation stuff. You know, that that's kind of more where I picture myself doing as an attorney, you know advocating and being in that litigation atmosphere. And they said, sure, let's see what we can do. So I started working with some of the people in litigation. I started working with John Litchfield and Chris Ward, kind of just a product of circumstance. I mean, a lot of it, we went to a Cubs game one night and John and Chris were both there. We got to talking. John's younger brother is one of my brother's best friends. And John had been working with Chris a lot in labor and employment, obviously, and it just led to us doing some projects together. And then me being exposed to labor and employment law really for the first time, I mean, and it's just worked out that way. So I didn't have a set plan there. You know, it wasn't like I, I didn't have an agenda.
0: Well, that's one of my favorite parts. I think that's how it is for a lot of people professionally. And so I mentioned how we are getting a fair amount of law students to listen to this. And I think it's, that's why I think this is a powerful discussion because they can hear most of us don't set out at 18. And have this straight line to what we're going to be doing when we're 35, 45, 55. Or we try to, but that line ends up going all over the place. And a lot of times it's one of those, this thing just happened and it worked out.
1: Yeah, two things. Again, trying to keep as many doors open as you can. The other is don't don't pretend like you have it all figured out before you even really got started. Don't be upset if the path doesn't match up to the one you thought you might have had in your head.
0: Exactly. Because that's the real path Your head path, the made up one. But, and tell me a little bit about your practice. What's your day to day like? What sort of matters do you work on?
1: So, like I said, I started, I, I fully became a member, a primary member of the labor and employment group last August, but that it wasn't like a, a sea change for me. You know, I, I, I had been doing a lot of labor and employment work um, up to that point. It's just the first few years at Foley, at least. Um, they like to keep you have the ability to explore other areas within your practice group. But now I do a lot of, uh, I mean, I do, I still do a a lot of litigation, both in and out of labor and employment. I'm trying to do more and more counseling now. So just if a if an, an issue comes up with an employee for for a client, they'll give us a call. We can give some ideas of how to best handle that situation short of litigation. I work with a lot of agencies so that are responsible for labor and employment laws, Illinois Department of Human Rights, or similar agencies throughout the United States and responding to different individual employment charges that may have been filed there. And then, like I said, I still have my, my hands in a few litigation matters. I mean, I have two litigation matters right now that one's going to be increasingly busy and one is very busy right now that I've been on since I was a first year. <laughs> so it's one of these gifts that keeps on giving.
0: I know that life. That used to be my former life. I'm, I'm
1: aware. But, it, but it, you know, it's also interesting, too, because I've gotten to grow with the cases. So I literally was working on this, this one case, helping on the legal research to draft the complaint when I was a first year that summer. Now I am the primary client contact, and I argued a motion for summary judgment on it this year. I've been doing all the drafting. The associate that I had been working with at the time is now a partner. So I'm the only associate on the, on the case. So as the case went along, more opportunities came my way. And I was able to, to, to the credit of these partners working with me, allowing me to take those opportunities as new experiences. And I really appreciate that trust and still do. It's fun to see that growth of your career along with the case, even if it is a case that just seems like it just doesn't want to go away for, for five years.
0: As we wind down here, I am wondering how has your military experience translated into you as a lawyer? Do you find it valuable?
1: Uh, Yeah, I think so for a few reasons. I mean, one, I think is the teamwork aspect that we referred to and talked about earlier. I like working on teams. Now, Foley tries to, for the benefit of their clients, to keep things fairly lean here. So you don't get on huge teams necessarily. Even still working in a group of three, four people, there's still that idea of teamwork and collaboration. And even right now, even though we can't sit in the same room together, I still feel like we can do that. I'd obviously rather be in the same room as people. I like walking around, but I like the teamwork and I like the ability to ha- to work on teams here. And you know, I think the other lesson is just in in resilience and being able to take on, again, situations you think might be overwhelming at first and being able to kind of hash it out in a step-by-step basis and how you'll be able to to accomplish or get over that obstacle. I mean, I guess particularly in a time like right now, when I think we're all always just had this feeling in the back of our head of just uncertainty, being able to just get past that and be, I accept the situation for what it is. We still have to get something done. Let's figure out a way to get there and not just get overwhelmed by the situation and everything surrounding what you need to accomplish, but really just focus on, all right, all that's there. I can't control it. How do we get this done?
0: That's invaluable. Right. What you just said right there does not to be, <laughs> that's, that's major.
1: Right. And I think we all can. I mean, well, and I think a lot, most of us do, maybe, maybe we we'll want to do it in a conscious way, but, um, and if you're not, if you don't feel like you can, I mean, that's, gets, then we go back to the teamwork because you got a team, right? So, and, and then it gets back to leadership. Do you have a leader that you can trust and, and you can express these feelings to? So, I mean, it all kind of ties together.
0: Well, and as you said, when we started, when we, uh, before we started recording, I commented that you were right on time and you said, I guess that's the military. So you definitely bring that forward. And when
1: there'll be some people, there'll be some people that said they've been late before. Don't worry.
0: Well, I mentioned also that you're a co-chair of the Firms Veterans and Allies Affinity Group. And also whenever we have calls for that group, everybody's very prompt. So I I appreciate that as well.
1: Yeah. And and I'll give a plug for that right now too. That was something that did not exist when I started at Foley. I went to, uh, I spoke on a panel in Northwestern with some other veterans in Big Law. They mentioned they had these groups and I I knew Foley didn't have one. So I came back and I think I spoke with uh, Rebecca Bradley about it when I first got back and she was working recruiting at the time. And she was just somebody that I I knew since I was a summer and I thought she might have the right connection, but she hooked me up with the right people. And I think within the next few months, you know, it was something that we were able to get together. Obviously, we're still trying to get it off the ground, but certainly a step in the right direction. And uh, I'm thankful that Foley saw it as a worthy cause.
0: Yeah. Well, and we appreciate your leadership there. And I'll say, as we're we're wrapping things up, I do like to give every guest an opportunity to share some words of advice or reflections, whether that be to current law students or maybe to your formal, former self who is about to navigate this four years at the Air Force Academy, six years serving at then law school what are your thoughts or reflections or advice you'd give somebody who's looking at becoming a lawyer? Yeah.
1: I, I mean, I think it, it's a lot of the themes we talked about already. One of the sayings in the air force is flexibility is the key to air power, but flexibility is a key to a lot of things and being adaptable and being willing to take on new situations. I step out of your comfort zone are I think invaluable at a micro level. So taking on an assignment that you think you're getting out over your skis a little bit, or on a macro level and stepping into a career, it might be a little bit of a risk at first and, and, you, and you think might—you don't know how it's going to pan out. So I think being adaptable and being willing to take on some risks are, are key.
0: Thanks, I think that's fantastic advice. And then the final question, if someone wants to get in touch with you, best way to find you Foley's website?
1: Yeah, I think so. Yeah, I, I think my email's there. So go ahead and reach out. I'm happy to talk.
0: Awesome, well, thank you so much for joining me. I'll talk to you later, Patrick. Thanks, Alexis. Thanks so much for listening to my conversation with Patrick McMahon. I am delighted to add this update to his show, which is that as of February, 2022, Patrick became senior counsel at Foley and Larder. Congratulations, Patrick. Thank you for listening to The Path and the Practice. I hope you enjoyed the conversation and join us again next time. And if you did enjoy it, please share it, subscribe, and leave us a review as your feedback on the podcast is important to us. Also, please note that this podcast may be considered attorney advertising and is made available by Foley & Lardner LLP for informational purposes only. This podcast does not create an attorney-client relationship. Any opinions expressed herein do not necessarily reflect the views of Foley & Lardner, LLP, its partners, or its clients. Additionally, this podcast is not meant to convey the firm's legal position on behalf of any client, nor is it intended to convey specific legal advice.